The last assertion of Psalm 133 says, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Notice that the word commanded sounds like a past tense to us, and that'll be fitting enough for the point that I'm wanting to make. In the Hebrew, it's actually in the perfect tense. In the Septuagint translation, it happens to be in the aorist tense. But in both cases, what we're learning is that there is an action that has already been completed. And I believe that is very significant because the place of unity once existed. And it was there that God commanded the blessing. And because of sin, that blessing was lost. And part of the program of redemptive history is to bring us back there, where that blessing will be received and experienced once again. So you must remember that it's the eternal God who is speaking to us, who is both outside of history, also knows history perfectly, has, as it were, seen every event and was in the garden at the beginning of creation. And his voice is saying to us, there, where there once existed divine order, is where I commanded the blessing. The pursuit to find that place, therefore, is a very worthy and biblical pursuit. We are looking for unity. And we are at the point in our studies where we are focusing on the question, how does it flow? And I trust as a result of last Sunday's teaching, your hearts are being stirred by the realization that one of the most necessary things that has to first be in place is the curiosity in the interest in that very objective, that it would flow, that you would ask yourself the question, how does this flow? That you would have a sense in your spirit that you would like to find that place where both unity is experienced and then in the context of unity, our heavenly, notice the word, Father, which speaks of positive relationships, has promised to command a blessing. I think one of the reasons why unity does not flow in the human race, certainly within Christendom as well, within individual churches also, and indeed even within our family experiences, is because of a lack of interest, a lack of attention to the question, a failure to even feel the need to be curious about, to be burdened by, to be praying, to be wondering, to be pondering, to be attentive to instructors that are speaking to this end about how does this flow? One of the evidences of that lack within the house of God, within Christian peoples, is the fact that over history, a number of different objectives that the Bible speaks clearly about have seemingly first caught the very real and vibrant attention of what I will call irreligious reformers. It has taken irreligious reformers, either confessed atheists, 
or believers in other systems of truth outside of the one truth of Christianity, or those who have gone under the label of Christianity, but they do not brace orthodoxy. Often they are of what we would call today a liberal bent. But nonetheless, it has often been from those quarters, the irreligious sector of humanity, within which a voice has been raised powerfully enough, concertedly enough, effectively enough to catch the attention of all of us. And then the church all too often plays, as it were, catch up to try to link into the concerns that the irreligious are raising. Now, certainly this phenomenon, which I do declare is true, manifests itself up and down a scale of stark contrast or not so stark contrast. In my view, the first example of this that I'll present to you is in some senses not as great of a contrast as others that I'm aware of. But why should it be left to the Dutch Catholic humanist Desiderius Erasmus to lay the egg of religious reformation so as to rescue man from the corruption that was rife within Middle Age human experience. The experiences of the Middle Age period is what I mean. You may have heard that remark that Erasmus laid the egg and Luther hatched it. And certainly in making this observation, I am not attempting to cover all of the considerations that would be relevant. I'm mainly giving you an impulse for your heart to register and to reflect upon because it is an accurate phenomenon to observe. That is to say, what I'm stating is accurate and has been manifest over and over again. I recognize, of course, that a John Hoos or a Wycliffe also raised their voices in their time, but there was no voice that was effective enough to catch the attention of the populace at large until a humanist laid the egg. And then the church caught on and said, as it were, Let's sit on that and maybe hatch it and make something out of it. I'm not suggesting, of course, that Luther lacked sincerity in all that he applied himself to, but the question still remains the same. It was Erasmus that wanted to see originally the Bible in the language of the common people. It was Erasmus that had an interest of doing the kind of studies in the original languages that would make us better equipped to exegete the Word of God. The church historian Owen Chadwick captures something of what I'm stating here in his volume on the Reformation. He says, at the beginning of the 16th century, everyone that mattered in the Western church was crying for Reformation. Now, before you misunderstand what that means and you think I am contradicting myself, what he's saying is there was a gen general felt need among the populace as there has often been percolating within human existence, within the human race, as it's manifest in the public square, in the churches, in the families. There's a general realization that something isn't right, something has to be fixed. The world isn't as it should be. And so... Owen Chadwick begins his volume on the Reformation with that observation that there was this general awareness. 
But it goes on to point out exactly what I just stated, that effectively it was left to Erasmus to rise up and say, let's do something about this meaningfully. Let's act on these considerations. Let's apply ourselves effectively enough to actually make the change. And so Chadwick writes, the people cultivated a religion of external acts and substituted pilgrimage and indulgences and relics for a genuine change in heart and life. That was manifest at every hand. But with respect to how Erasmus entered into that situation, Chadwick points out that it is the better side of Erasmus, the concern for true religion, which turned his satire into the severest form of condemnation. And then he quotes from some of Erasmus' early writings, which were an impetus in his times to get people to awaken out of their Laodiceanism, out of their sense of putting up with the status quo, out of their comfortable attitudes toward what you would wake up to the next Sunday and continue to do again and again and again. His quotation reads as follows from Erasmus, Perhaps thou believest that all thy sins are washed away with a little paper, a sealed parchment, with the gift of a little money, or some wax images, with a little pilgrimage. Thou art utterly deceived. Without ceremonies, perhaps thou shalt not be a Christian, but they make thee not a Christian. Well, you can reflect, if you need to, again, on those words from Erasmus. They are satirical for sure. They may sound quite familiar to your ears. You've acclimated to those sort of observations, but in their time, they were really cutting into the public discourse. They were effectively mocking the Catholic Church, that within which Erasmus continued and stayed. You probably know that there was sort of a rivalry between Luther and Erasmus. And so my point is, is Erasmus really fits into something close to the irreligious. He didn't fully embrace the Reformation, but he sounds an awful lot like Luther, does he not, in those remarks. And I'm saying that why was he the first voice to start to say these things effectively and light the fire? Why wasn't it lit from within the church itself? Again, we're talking about a trend, and we're not getting into the technical details. Were we to get into the technical details, the observation that I'm making would still hold. But of course, I would have to observe that when you look into the details, you have a more nuanced picture. You have perhaps the Waldenses, and you have these others that I've already mentioned that are there saying something, but Erasmus was the voice that laid the egg, brothers and sisters. That's a fact of history. And I'm saying, think about that. Why should it be outside of those who went the distance in the desire for reformation that the egg was laid from that sector? Why should it be left to the British essayist Thomas Clarkson and the romantic poet William Wordsworth to be among the leading voices advocating the abolition of slavery in England. In 1785, Clarkson 
wrote an essay on the assigned topic of the following. Is it lawful to make slaves of others against their will? That was simply an assigned topic to a man who was in university and had to prepare a dissertation in Latin. Thomas Clarkson took up that question. Don't you think that's a good question for the church to be thinking about? Do you realize the Anglican church was operating day after day after day while slavery was underway? Maybe they had a sermon, maybe they had a comment here and there, as we tend to do about things. But who actually did something about it? History will bear that it was primarily Thomas Clarkson in unison with some others like Wilberforce, but also famously William Wordsworth, who again fits within the category of the irreligious. Wordsworth was not the worst of the Romantic poets, but he was no solid Christian to say the least, and certainly nor were most of the others. And what I'm getting at is Clarkson studied the issues. He read books on the topic. He, I don't think he actually went to Africa, but he read an account of the African slave trade, and he thought an awful lot about it and wrote on that issue and won the prize for the presentation of his essay. And after having won the prize, he was riding on his horseback, or on his horse, (laughs) from Cambridge to London, and he relays the following. Clarkson is writing here, As it is usual to read these essays publicly in the Senate House, soon after the prize is adjudged or granted, and he received it. I was called to Cambridge for this purpose. I went and performed my office. I read my essay. On returning, however, to London, the subject of it almost wholly engrossed my thoughts. Here's a man who has studied something, thought about something. Some issue has come within his purview, and we're discovering that he just can't put it back to sleep. He just can't leave the house where he was gathered, something like a church, go back home and forget about what he heard and not do something about it. I was wholly engrossed in my thoughts, he said. I became at times very seriously affected while upon the road. I stopped my horse occasionally and dismounted and walked as he was captured within his thoughts. I frequently tried to persuade myself in these intervals, that the contents of my essay could not be true. By which I'm stating he sensed the pressure of the truth upon his life, impinging upon his present behavior, and dictating to him that he ought to do something about it, and he would rather ignore it and even argue that it's not true. But he fought, as you'll see, through that tendency... And he goes on to say, the more, however, I reflected upon them, or rather, upon the authorities on which they were founded. Does not the Christian church have an authority upon which the issues that our human race is concerned about and have need of salvation from or within... Is there not an authority that you can study out of which you can give a sermon or a talk or tell your position on it? What he is saying is 
these realities were working in me in such a way that I had stated my position, but now I couldn't get away from the implications. I recognized the authorities upon which I derived my essay content, and he said, the more I gave them credit. That is to say, the more I thought about the authorities that informed my ideas, the more I realized I can't just dismiss this as maybe it's not even true, maybe it's not even relevant. They were speaking like a voice saying, this is true, this is the way, you need to walk in this. Coming in sight, Clarkson continues, of Wade's Mill in Hedfordshire, I sat down, troubled in mind, on the turf by the roadside and held my horse. Here a thought came into my mind that if the contents of the essay were true, it was time some person should see these calamities to their end. Agitated in this manner, I reached home. This was in the summer of 1785. What you're reading, whether you realize it or not, is a little vignette into the history of how slavery came to be ended in England. And certainly, ultimately, that lent a moral force upon the American story, obviously. And Clarkson did apply himself to the issue of slavery. And as I already stated, though I can't enlarge upon each of these observations at length, because this is a phenomenon that I'm presenting to you from which to work. It's not the essence of the argument for today. But I'm saying to you that there were churches within England, within America, elsewhere in Europe, that knew of this phenomenon. And someone might say, well, do you think they were all in favor of slavery? And I would have to respond, isn't it a shame that you have to ask that question? Because there isn't a vocal enough, sustained cry to the extent that the churches can do something about it. And they can, can they not? They can preach. Did Jesus not preach? Did not the prophets preach? You say, well, this isn't Israel. No, it's the entire world. The world is my congregation, Wesley said. And what I'm saying is, Clarkson, though none of these men am I, as it were, kicking in the shin... But I'm making a point for the household of God. Clarkson, through his influence, and of course the long history within England as to how they arrived in 1807 with the passage of the bill for the abolition of the slave trade. 1807, I said. Remember that the American Civil War starts in 1861. They were a little ahead of us. When the bill was passed... William Wordsworth famously wrote a sonnet to Clarkson, the lines of which in part read as following. The poem starts with this, Clarkson, why not Jesus? Why not Christian people? Why does it have to be said Clarkson? Clarkson, it was an obstinate hill to climb. How toilsome, nay, how dire it was. By thee is known by none perhaps so feelingly, but thou who, starting in thy fervent prime, 
didst first lead forth this pilgrimage sublime. You may debate the way that I'm analyzing this. You would find it difficult to win that debate, I assure you. You may think, I don't know, I hope not, that I am negative toward the church. I would say, Jesus beat me to that many a time, and so did the prophets. Many a time, if you know your Bible well. What I am saying to you, that the record in world history is that a sonnet was written by a romantic, irreligious poet about another essayist. I'm not extracting their humanity, just so you know. I'm not kicking them in the shin. These are not ad hominem attacks. I'm saying the church was not in front. And therefore, the record points to Clarkson. But in this poem, just so you understand what I'm talking about, in subsequent lines, Wordsworth speaks of a voice of nature. He speaks of an oracular seat in Clarkson's heart. These romantics were individualists. They were naturalists. They believed very much in keeping with the Enlightenment, though there's a certain reaction against the Enlightenment, but they did not dismiss the idea of centering ourselves within the universe and drawing upon our own powers in order to bring change to society, to cease waiting for the church to do something about the oppression that is in our own families, in our own churches, often being supported by the way the church acts or doesn't act, what it teaches and doesn't teaches, what attitudes continue year after year after year. And so it's left to a man who, absent a moving within the churches, a stirring in the mulberry trees, a revival of the spirit, he's revived in the humanist spirit, I suppose you might say. And he speaks of a voice in an oracular seat within Clarkson's heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not hearing the word of God. We're not hearing the moral law of Almighty God that is teaching humanity how to live rightly before Him, underneath which we all must submit ourselves. That's not what happened. Why should it be left to the troubled heart of Mary Wollstonecraft to raise a public outcry against the abuses that women suffered from the excuses and the cover that were commonly made beneath the religious cloak of male headship. Now, to deny that there were not abuses that were rife within European Christendom, abuses that, again, as I say, were continued over and over again. And how did they continue? Well, I have a cloak. I have an excuse for this abuse. I'll call it male headship. And I'll continue to oppress women in ways that are highly unchristlike. Why should it be left to Mary Wollstonecraft? Again, I actually have empathy for these people as I do for humankind at large. Dear Mary Wollstonecraft, she was no help. I grant that 100%. But if you know her story and you say, well, she wasn't fit for that task. I'm sure you would. And I know your gender when you said it. Why weren't you saying it then? It's a fact, appreciable enough that it catches the attention of history, appreciably enough that it can't be denied, that the squeaky wheel that finally called for some anointing to do something about this was Mary Wollstonecraft's writing 
under the title of A Vindication of the Rights of Women. You say, well, that started the women's liberation movement and that hasn't been a help. That's my point, brothers and sisters. These irreligious reformations never wind up bringing out the will of God. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. But what kind of observation is that for those who effectively sit on their hands or have all the excuses in the world as to why they're not moved and don't do what needs to be done in terms of humility, in terms of change, in terms of seeking unity and collectiveness to do something about the social ills, let's say, that are in your own family. And then let's go from that to your own church. And then outside of your church, how about the other churches that you know about? Do something about it. You say, well, I was taught that it's not good to just do something because the road to hell is paved by good intentions. Okay, fine. We'll leave it to the irreligious to take up the cause. They will. They will. And they do. You know, she wrote that in 1792, a vindication of the rights of women, primarily in response to Thomas Paine's work, Rights of Man, which he wrote in 1791. Now, Thomas Paine was one of the primary voices that built up enough steam and motivation for the American Revolution to actually take place. So if you have this nostalgic view of some Christian righteous impetus that brought about our rescue from old King George, the what is it, the third or the second, Jolene? Third, I'm here to tell you that the man who wrote Common Sense and the man who wrote The American Crisis was also a man who loved the French Revolution and helped that to go. He was no good Christian man. He was a deist at best. He was another humanist. He was not a positive stream, brothers and sisters. What I'm trying to say is Thomas Paine is out there writing about the rights of man and the colonial peoples of our time, you know, the foundation from whence this country comes, that spoke so powerfully to them that it built up their steam to fight the American Revolution. That's a fact about the rights of man. Oh, so pardon me if you don't mind, but the males love the topic of the rights of man enough to pick up their guns and fight. And it's a Christian nation, so we're told. And I'm not, again, I'm painting with a broad brush, but I'm using true colors. I realize there's nuance here. I realize, you know, at some level you could pick up George Whitfield or, 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 or Jonathan Edwards and it's a different story. I get that. But what I'm trying to say is, nonetheless, the tendency is real. So when Mary Wollstonecraft, in the midst of this general breakdown of human existence, looks around and says, who's pleading for the right way for women to be treated in the human race. You know that other 50%, that other half created in God's image? Who's talking about that? She looks around. I respect Edmund Burke, but no, he isn't. So she picks up her pen and she writes what she wrote. Here's one remark out of her volume. Probably the prevailing opinion that woman was created for man, that is in your Bible, but it is a question, isn't it? as to how you preach that text, how you apply that text, how you live out that text. Can text become a pretext for a lot of bad contexts? It can. But pay attention to the way she's thinking this through. What you'll see, I think, first of all, you'll certainly see there is an irreligious mind here. 
But what I hope you get from what I'm saying is, why wasn't someone who can think more clearly lifting his voice up strongly enough to set these issues in a proper God-honoring setting? Probably, she writes, the prevailing opinion that women were created for men may have taken its rise from Moses' poetical story. Yet, as very few, it is presumed, who have bestowed any serious thought on the subject ever supposed that Eve was, literally speaking, one of Adam's ribs, the deduction must be allowed to fall to the ground. That is, that women were made for man. Or only be so far admitted as it proves that man, from the remotest antiquity, found it convenient to exert his strength to subject or subjugate his companion and his invention to show that she ought to have her neck bent under the yoke because she, as well as the brute creation, the animals, were created to do his pleasure. You know, I'll just say in general, if someone's thinking, isn't there a need to speak against the feminist movement and its extremes that it's gone to through this trajectory? I'm like, yes. So what are we going to do? Wait for Nancy Lee DeMoss or Elizabeth Elliot? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't disagree with a Titus II sort of approach, let the elder women speak to the younger women, but you're kind of missing my point. I'm talking about a voice, a presentation, a light, a salt that is strong enough to set things in proper order. So sure, I'm not inconsistent. I'm saying let the godly voices speak on that issue as well. I'm not here pretending that everything that was going on in Victorian England was man's fault, male fault. I'm not pretending that any more than I'm pretending it now. But I am saying the reality is, is that that phenomenon was and is very prominent. You say, well, it really wasn't a true Christian environment. You're making my case, my friend. So where were the voices who were true Christians is what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? If you're saying, well, you know, Ireland, Catholic Ireland or Protestant Ireland for that matter, you want to look into an Irish home, you want to see the way the stereotypical male operates, it could, you could go anywhere in the world, but I'm saying wherever you want to go and you want to tell me there weren't abuses, are you serious? We could stay on this point for a long time. Why should it be left getting a little more warm toward our primary Topic: Why should it be left to the Italian deist Giuseppe Mazzini, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, to inspire American religious progressive activists like Henry George, Henry Damaris Lloyd, George Heron, Vita Scudder, a female, another female, Jane Addams, and then perhaps a name that some would be more familiar with, but fits into this whole group, Walter Rauschenbusch, the so-called father of the social gospel. But he was in the mix of all of these influences. 
Why should it be left to this set of individuals to do something about the egregious social injustices that plagued the 19th century? Now, you may not be closely familiar with that time frame or any of these individuals. It would be wonderful, as the Lord allows, to dig into some of these things. It's one of my interests to provide these historical contexts for both our informing and our analysis, because I think they do serve as a good foil, if you will, F-O-I-L, a good example against which we can think about our own behavior and the like. And additionally, it helps you to realize how we got to where we are. All of this that is presently underway in terms of social justice and the pursuit of right uh, relationships, you know, and, and the oppressed being free. You say it's very corrupt and it's very, um, reckless and lawless. And I would agree with, with that 90%, maybe more of the instances of our times. The average voice within our era is a very different voice than the Manzini's or the Tolstoy's or the Henry George's, but they're in that trajectory is what I'm stating, if you're hearing what I'm saying. Let me put it to you this way, and here's the point. They're in the flow of that anointing that came down from these heads, these minds, these secular high priests that saw issues within, again, the human race. But when I state that, don't miss what I'm saying. I'm saying it's everywhere. I'm saying it's in Again, the public square, we could say in politics, it's in your city, it's in your town, it's in your church, it's among the churches, and it's in your family. And I'm saying what I'm presenting to you, whether it's Desiderius, Erasmus, Thomas Clarkson, Mary Wollstonecraft, or Henry George, I'm saying the flow toward unity or these solutions came from the irreligious sector. That piece of history, by the way, that I'm referring to represented, take a name, Henry George, for example, for your interests precedes the activities of the Frankfurt School and the Institute for Social Research. The voices of the Herbert Marcuses and the Max Horkheimers. The point being And I will just parenthetically state, I'm informed by what I preach, both in terms of what stirs me, as well as how I think about these things. I'm informed from my awareness of the broader historical stream of influences and the reasons behind why the culture is presently in the condition that it is. And I am setting up Today's study in how does it flow by bringing to your hearts, as I stated at the outset, you first have to even want to ask that question. It's never going to flow if you're not curious. It's never going to flow if you don't have something that captures your heart as you're riding your horse from Cambridge to London, thinking about the issues that were preached on at church and feeling the authority of what they're all about and saying, how are we going to do something about this? 
And what we have seen is if the church doesn't rise up and get an anointing from the high priest of the Lord Jesus Christ or from the heights of heaven and start to see something done within which God can command the blessing. And no, I'm not a post-millennialist, but that hardly dismisses the need to still see change wherever we can affect it. And we should be seeing that change or should be concerned if we don't and be praying and seeking God and stirred to our lives last breath like at Whitfield did. He said, I will die in the harness. Well, I don't want to get off topic, but we got ministers galore who reach a certain age and then, and then they retire and go off into the sunset. Well, that's between them and the Lord. But I'm speaking about a mentality. I'm speaking about a condition among the confessing Christians that they like to hear platitudes. They like to hear... Um, abstract concepts and they leave it to the irreligious under whatever motives you think are working in them. And I am well able to critique and be bothered and troubled by the streams that flow from their hearts. I am well aware righteousness will never come. I'm well aware it doesn't reach what is acceptable before God. It is to be reprobated. I understand that from a certain context, but if you yourself are doing nothing about it, you are an illegitimate voice against the evil. And that's a fact. And I'm saying that to whatever you would attribute their stirrings, stirrings they nonetheless are. And the stories I've been telling you are very true to history. I want to read to you a little piece of commentary on the history of the 19th century out of which the current social justice, you know, set of ideas and theories and values comes. It comes directly out of this. It works its way certainly through the Frankfurt School, but I'm telling you, even before the Frankfurt School, you've got to go back to these influences. In Peter Frederick's book entitled Knights of the Golden Rule, the intellectual as Christian social reformer in the 1890s. Now I've already referred to you, which was from memory in one previous teaching, that which J. Gresham Machen relates in his biography about how he was so powerfully affected by his German liberal professors who he at that time, he had not written Christianity and liberalism yet, that came later, his dear mom helped him to stay grounded and oriented in his Orthodox Christian commitments. But what I'm saying is, when he went to Germany and came under the influence of his German professors who manifested a genuine down-to-earth concern and thought through actual strategies and ways to do something and to apply Christ, the Christian faith. You follow what I mean? When he saw that coming out of them and saw, like I think of Jane Adams and the tenement houses and so on, when you actually see somebody do something about it and help the poor and the sick and the, and the lying in the streets and so on, and you begin to see people come together and unify and, 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 nationalities and economic situations and so on. You see the church actually paying attention to those issues. What I'm saying is that J. Gresham Machen was really drawn by that influence. 
It's very interesting. So, such men as were these German neo-Orthodox slash liberal professors, they too were the intellectual Christian social reformers. Relatively speaking, they were irreligious. You follow what my point is? But they were under the name of Christian. They had an argument of Christianity. You know, I, I have to stop these observations at some point, of course. And I was aware that I could make a whole study out of just this. A series of studies, indeed. And one of the observations I could have made is, why should it be left to an Indian pacifist social organizer by the name of Mahatma Gandhi, that's not his first given name, but Gandhi, to read the Sermon on the Mount every single day in a condition of awe in his spirit. I mean, that's what he says, or something close to that, that he was in the habit of reading the Sermon on the Mount with great respect every single day. I am suggesting to you that God himself would be asking his churches, when's the last time you read the Sermon on the Mount with awe in your spirit? There's debate about how Mother Teresa treated her fellow nuns. I understand that, and I get that there probably is a complicated story to it. There often is among those who are not solid Christians. I totally get that. But when's the last time you went out and ministered to the lepers? Well, back to Peter Frederick and his comments out of Knights of the Golden Rule. He writes, in the 1880s and 1890s, Many American intellectuals were awakening to the increasing social evils of the new urban industrial age. Well, amen. I mean, nowadays we have different issues. We have the technological age. Um, you know, we have the COVID age. I recognize there are a few mature voices that are striving in their human vessel style to speak to the needs of our times. But has it occurred to anybody that we don't exactly have a unified, as it were, Puritan representation? Do you know what I'm trying to say? When in the Puritan era, there was a camaraderie of solid men who were sanctified and loved one another and worked in a unified fashion. And they had a real impact in their time. It's always a battle. It's always a struggle. But they did, brothers and sisters. It's called the Puritan era. And it stretches all the way to, say, Spurgeon. Or maybe even Martin Lloyd-Jones. Do you understand what I'm saying? That was not just a revival, though it had revivals. It was a, it was a sustained, godly influence from out of Christianity. And it was because men were unified in the care and concern of the needs of their times to bring Christian light and salt to their times. What I'm saying again is in the late 19th century with the industrial revolution and the shift from a rural nation to an urban nation where most of the peoples lived within cities and necessarily therefore had to work in the factories and so on. I mean, Christians live there. You live on the earth. Jesus says, I'm not taking you out of the earth. You live in the middle of this to bring a witness to it. 
And these were real issues. We can't digress into describing what this all was about. I mean, I suppose if you're interested, you can read Charles Dickens. I'm somewhat kidding, but... Anyway, our author goes on to say these American intellectuals took their cue from Henry George, and particularly his book, Progress and Poverty, which was written in 1879, in which he says, Henry George does, quote, it is around the standard of duty rather than around the standard of self-interest that men must rally to win the rights of man. And maybe somebody says, well, I can't agree fully with that. Well, nor can I. But I do agree with somebody saying that this capitalistic, industrially driven, urban-centered new change in the way life is experienced within which money is the main driver of what sets up everything down to the family, I do believe that someone should be preaching the word about that issue and Christians should be modeling a different moral orientation and not letting money drive their lives. But perhaps even my observation is lost upon our, our generation because it's so habituated into an interest in having more and more things and a certain degree of a comfortable lifestyle that we can't even understand what we've lost and partly because it was left to Henry George and the progressives to say this is wrong and this is oppressing humanity and so we dismiss it because Henry George said it. And yet you go back and you read the Old Testament prophets or Jesus himself or Mary's Magnificat and you will see that God cares about the poor and the oppressed and whether you're giving the laborer his money and what kind of conditions your slave is even under. You have a Lord in heaven. You better be careful about how you're treating others. That's a value of the Bible. A value of the Bible that speaks to pure religion is visit the fatherless and the widows. That means look around you, feed your neighbor, love your enemy, do good. Let them see your good works so that your Father in heaven would be glorified. I continue to read from Knights of the Golden Rule. Not since the abolition movement had educated Americans been so disturbed by the inequalities and injustices of their society. Remember with me, who was it? Why was it left to John Brown? Why was it left to Harry Beecher Stowe? Why was it left to Frederick Douglass? Are you hearing what I'm saying? You think this is irrelevant? Show me a man in the Bible who had the mind and heart of God and the opportunity to do something about slavery, and I'll show you Paul in the letter called Philemon, and you will see that he didn't just teach, which I believe he did, balance and understanding, and reached out of the humanist commentary into a higher set of reflections, and that is, we are all sinners under God. The biggest slavery any of us are in is self-imposed. It's the slavery of sin. And so Paul effectively says, everybody, cool it for a moment. Take a deep breath and first get a sense of who you are. Look in your own eye at how big the beams are. 
which is not to dismiss the problems that are out there. And he also says there's a way in which you do this and God vindicates those that wait on him. There's a whole broader, deep, beautiful value system that you will never understand until you first honor Almighty God as the God of the universe that we all should bow our knees to. Do you hear what I'm saying? What I'm observing is we've got some great southern theologians I won't give the names because I'm not here to denigrate them. Civil War era, great Southern theologians. Where are their treaties? Against the horrors of the slave trade. John Newton figured out how to do it, and he did it. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's an example for you. I'm serious. He figured out you could raise a voice against this. It's what we're called to do. What are you doing if you're not doing that? Repeating the Westminster Confession of Faith? Or just having a anointed worship session. You know, I'm thinking about any particular tradition from the most liturgical to the most charismatic. You know, are you jabbering in tongues or repeating the Book of Common Prayer? What are you doing? Well, I guess I need to finish my quotation or I'll never get through at least to some point in this study. I think I was reading at this point in Frederick's quote, not since the abolition movement had educated Americans been so disturbed by the inequalities and injustices of their society. The new culprit, however, was not the slave owner, but the industrial and financial entrepreneur. Rockefellers, Goulds, Morgans, the revered values of American society seem to many to be turned around, stressing private avarice, inequality of opportunity and treatment, and competitive greed rather than public responsibility, equality, and cooperation. The building of transcontinental railroads, large cities, and monolithic, here monopolies, monolithic corporations were notable achievements but had bad human costs, sordid slums, forbidding factories, municipal, state, and federal corruption, and the dehumanization of less fortunate Americans. Well, that's a secular historian talking about a secular movement, but sounding sort of like a prophet relative to the absence of a voice that I can give you that is ubiquitous enough and consistent enough from the environs of Christendom so that I can tell you this didn't happen because in Christian America, churches were alive to these issues and they weren't themselves money-centered and not thoughtful about the less fortunate and doing something about it within their own homes, in their own churches, and then as churches, not just doing something about it, but moved enough to say, hey, let's get together and drop our petty silliness and let's, for example, listen to a pastor and align ourselves under his leadership so that we can see a unity flow from God in the direction of something positive and be a church that brings an influence into this world. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Has the salt lost its savor? Does the light stand no chance against the darkness in our times? Is there no reason for us to hear afresh the words of Jesus that you are the light of the world? 
We are to be a city on a hill. That's New Testament. And what kind of city would we be if my family, if your family, if our families were what the world saw? What about this assembly? When people come into this assembly, what do they see? Do they see a well-ordered church? Do they see a people striving together for the faith of the gospel? Do they see a people that are grateful for godly ministry and anointed leadership and willing to align themselves under it in humility, knowing that if he is a godly man, he's going to be attentive to the several gifts that are among us and he will simply oversee their orchestration, sometimes bring correction, but mostly seek to just bring edification and to enable you to live to your full potential. Is that what they say? It may seem like it becomes a self-centered turn in the message when I make the observation that I think there's some truth to the remark that I have sought for decades, really, many years, to unify an effective light-salt-bomb effect within my family as a part of this assembly. Therefore, this assembly experiencing and entering into that with the hopes that under God, simply in the interest of serving God, not in the interest of doing something to do something. No, look, most of the seats are empty here, and I'm okay, and I'll be here next week. It has nothing to do with that. But I am wanting to glorify my Father in heaven, and I'm wanting to stand before Him on that day and Him not say, you buried your talent under a napkin. You didn't. Do something with what I gave you. Freely you received. Figure out how to freely give it. And while I thought we would introduce the stress of this message through the backdrop of these historical situations, I realized that there isn't enough time at this moment to go further in this study. So I will simply end the remarks for this Sunday and pick up from where we are when we get back to this. Which there will be a brief hiatus because of ministry elsewhere and other concerns or other factors. But perhaps I can effectively end and then launch from this by asking you, why should it be left to a New England poet to raise the question, before I built a wall... I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to know to whom I was like to give offense.